Welcome to our Trust Askell podcast. My name is Rob Robson and I'm the Trust Leadership Consultant for Askell. These podcasts are designed for leaders who are interested in system leadership. They'll feature a number of leaders from education, public services and the commercial sector. The people who feature in the podcast either lead across a number of sites and organisations or they have studied system leadership. We've chosen them because they have some fascinating insights. We hope this podcast is an opportunity for you to be able to step away from the always pressing world of leading in education, which of course has become even more frantic with the pressures added by COVID-19. We really do hope that these podcasts give you time to reflect. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, please do email me at rob.robson at askel.co.uk. If you didn't catch that, my email address is on the Askel website. For our first podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Sheriff, who's the current president of ASCOL. Richard is also the CEO of the Red Kite Learning Trust, but I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself. Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I know if you're listening to this, you're probably taking time away from the daily onslaught of having to deal uh, with COVID-related issues. Um, but I hope we can go a bit further than that today and kind of... Uh, have an opportunity to discuss things outside just the COVID bubble and know how hard it is to, to do that. Yeah, so about me, so I've been a, a school leader now for a head teacher for almost 20 years actually, and for the last five years been a, a leader of a trust that's been growing. So the trust at the moment is uh, has 13 schools, uh, nine of which are primary, the rest are secondary, and they're located in uh, in different parts of Leeds and in North Yorkshire in there in Harrogate. So a really contrasting set of schools, but fantastic, great heads uh, doing brilliant work. Uh, but, you know, we've got school with, you know, uh, incredibly high free school meals, huge needs, serving one of the most deprived communities in West Yorkshire. Another school, you know, just down the road who's serving a, a far more privileged community. So a real variety of schools within our trust. So that's my, my day job. Um, I also uh, have the challenge of being the director of uh, a teaching school hub, one of the pilots uh, for the hub. And that's really interesting. Thankfully, I've got a, a great team of people there doing the, the real work, but that's part of my role. And then the third part, obviously, is is the one that I'm speaking to you about, is that I'm president of ASCOL again this year, the accidental president uh, who came back again in a kind of Putin-esque-like way. I can assure you it's not a drive for world power or permanent place as a president. It's just circumstances dictated it was probably the best thing to do this year. So, yes, and, um, uh, and in between that, I do try and uh, ride a bike from time to time and enjoy the countryside where I've just moved to. Um, so that's me. Okay, and later on we'll get the uh, the chance to talk about chickens, I'm sure. You are the, the CEO of the Red Kite Learning Trust, aren't you? Is that right? Yes, Yeah, I am indeed. Um, and Richard, uh, how big is the Red Kite Learning Trust at the moment? The Red Kite Learning Trust, to say, has got 13 schools, about 8,500 children and 1,400 staff. So it's, uh, I was always quite surprised actually how that rates in terms of the size of trust, but actually we're one of the larger trusts, but obviously nowhere near the size of those large trusts, the Harris, the Oasis and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but we're a sufficient size now to build up, we hope, a, a level of sophistication and capacity that we really struggle to produce at the early stages of our growth. Okay, thank you. That's useful context for us. So 
Let's just start by asking you about what you've learned about being a system leader. You've, you've clearly moved, as you said, from being a head to, to um, somebody who's now a CEO, um, and you've also been part of growing a trust as well. So what have you learned? To, what's, what's the difference? What's the difference between being a system leader and a leader that works in one place? I think the, the first thing I would say is it's not like being a very big head teacher. And I think that's uh, really difficult because having spent so long being a school leader, some of the ways, some of the behaviours, some of the attributes that I felt were positives about being a school leader don't necessarily translate to being a system leader. So, for example, you know, being ridiculously tall uh, and um, having a loud voice is great in a corridor filled with children or dressing a hall packed with parents, but it's pretty useless if you're a CEO and you can't see people, so that you lose the physical presence within the place. And for me, who's a, I'm a very sociable person, and I actually relished that. You know, I would, as a head, always be at the gate in the morning, in the afternoon, be at parents' evening, be around, and there for staff, actually, and wander around and listen to staff and speak to staff. And you really felt you had a connection with the, the school community and you knew where the, the hotspots were, where the issues were, because you were walking that. As a CEO, you you can't do that. So this is a completely different world. So you have to work through people and for people. And that is yeah a different level of challenge. And I think there's also a sadness about that for, for many of us who've made that step because you do lose that intimate frontline interaction with children, teachers, staff in schools. It's not the same. You're Close companions tend to be those people you're working with at trust level, if you've got a trust team, and obviously the head teachers, the individual schools. But you don't penetrate very easily to those other levels of people doing the real work face to face. It makes make a real effort to do so. And when we've got 1,400, it's very hard to know everyone's names. Uh, it's not a native starting point for me with a very small brain. So that's something I always prided myself on as a head. I knew absolutely everybody who stood up in briefing on a Thursday morning. I would know who it was. And that was personal pride. You can't do that. So the first thing I would say, it's not like being a big head teacher. Be prepared for it to be quite different. I think the leads us on to, I suppose, the next thing I think I've been learning about, and that is, if you're not able just to walk around and speak to people and that whole management about walking around doesn't work, how do you communicate effectively? And I'm still battling with this, actually. You know, I do try to get out to you know a number of schools every week to listen to head teachers, senior leaders, staff in classrooms, even young people when it's possible to do so. But I also try and reinforce that with uh, email, newsletter, I've experimented this term with uh, a video piece to see if that worked for people. Uh, people have been too polite to laugh in my company about it, but I, I know those things can be easily um, dismissed as being a little bit silly or uncomfortable, but I'm looking at the ways how I can communicate with a larger audience in a different way. And also conscious that sometimes you can say too much. People are interested in what's happening in their environment with their immediate uh, leaders. And actually, why would you want this guy to come in and start taking up my time talking about lots of stuff that doesn't feel directly relevant? So choosing the right things to talk about in the right way to the right people with the right frequency is a challenge to get that right. So you've clearly been um, through a journey in doing this and you know, you're, you're being honest enough to say that you're not sure if you've got it quite right yet and you're still developing it and so on. But what knowledge and skills 
and what behaviours have you learned that you think are uh, advantageous to a CEO in this in your kind of position? I think there's a whole philosophy of how you go about being a CEO and a trust. For me, it is a position of service. You are there to support other leaders to do fantastic things. And I think you have to get, I feel you've got to get your head around that. You're, you're not the top of the top of the tree, you're the bottom. You're the person that holds others up. And you're there to allow them to do the great, magnificent and creative things they will do to support young people to achieve. And I think you've you've got to learn that that is absolutely the case. Because if you personally try to improve schools, you will make an awful mess. Because actually, schools are improved, I think, by the teams of people that are closest to the action. You know, you want people who are taking real responsibility, are held to account for doing that. But what they need from you is to take away blockages, deal with the difficult issues they can't, support to make difficult, perhaps courageous uh, choices to make schools better. Um, and to step in when perhaps things go terribly wrong, where you can make sure that children are protected. But it's a, it's the, the skill set to do that is different from just leading your own school. <clears throat> and the language we use is very important. So, if you, you know, we talk about our trust, you know, uh, it's a shared entity. It's something we all part of and I play a role in it, but so does everybody else. So. You know, it's not about standing at the front, throwing people forward into the breach. It is about standing behind often, making sure that people wish to step forward and motivated to do so, feel valued, trusted, empowered to do things. And I think there's a different skill set, different language around that that I feel is very important. The other way for us is, you know, right at the other end of the spectrum, which I'm not saying even exists, but let's just say uh, where you have a it's often called, you know, the flat pack approach to school leadership, where everything is dictated above. You get an instruction manual on how to run your school. There's a curriculum in a box. There's a behaviour system in a box, and you just do that. And as a trust leader, you just make sure people are doing what it says in the instructions. That's not an approach we've taken. We genuinely feel you can be, when you've got very different schools facing very different communities, there needs to be a level of, of autonomy, at the right level of autonomy, but that autonomy is a strong autonomy built from being, you know, autonomous but together. Um, and looking at opportunities where there is much more powerful than being alone. Um, so it's a, it's a balancing act really to try and do that. So my role is to try and keep that balance to be able to directive enough to make sure all the schools are doing well but to be standing back enough to allow schools to make that journey themselves to make it better than I could ever imagine it to be. You talked about autonomy there, but presumably, you know, there are, as you say, degrees of autonomy. There can't be complete autonomy on certain things. <clears throat> so how do you come to make the decisions on what schools can stay autonomous? In which areas can they stay autonomous? Sorry, and in which areas do, do they need to be part of a collective? Yeah, it's a very good point. And I think, um, you know, I think in the early days of the trust, I used the word autonomy too much. And we talked a lot about how trust schools have individual autonomy. And actually, uh, autonomy is another word for being lonely, uh, can be. And do you really want to be lonely? Do you aspire to be alone and just do your own thing? Some people do, but the majority of people don't. And I would argue that the evidence shows us, and Ofsted have backed this up, that when schools are alone and isolated, they're vulnerable and at risk and they have limited capacity to get themselves out of situations. So actually being truly autonomous is not a good thing. And schools never have been. 
Uh, they've always had some kind of controlling influence, always been part of local authorities, trust groups, groups of schools under the independent sector, whatever it is. So I think the idea of autonomy, complete autonomy, is a bit of a falsehood, even though we want it. But there are things that uh, we do want uh, head teachers. When you walk into a school as a head teacher, I think the thing that makes being a head teacher or principal so special is that you have got the opportunity to shape that school, to meet the needs of the young people in the community, and to also to fill the kind of ideas and inspiration you've got from you and your staff team. And that empowerment to do that is a tremendous motivator for people to work extraordinarily hard and creatively the interests of young people. I think they work much, much harder and much better than they were just told to follow a series of instructions and rules. But as you said, there's some things that we would do together. So, for example, there's some building blocks that we base the trust on. Our financial systems, no negotiation. That's it. That's how we do things around here. We're central finance system and we do that. We have standard reports, standard systems and processes. Not, not because we don't really want to go on about finance. We want to go about young people and experience. The same is true of our HR systems. We have a single HR system, contracts of employment, you know, the whole pay policy, all the way single system right the way across. Not a negotiable, obviously negotiable with the appropriate people at the appropriate time, but that's how we do things. Um, health and safety, compliance. We have one way of doing those things, one set of systems. Now, when I say that there's no input from the schools, it's just you do that. Of course, we do, don't we? Because we listen all the time to school leaders about how those processes are working. We've iterated those, you know, countless times to try and make them better. We're just looking at IT systems. Every school was doing something in IT. And we actually brought in a central IT function. So we have, uh, you know, using uh, cloud computing now with server, one server, server uh, unit in Leeds, one in Manchester. And we are now completely independent of the localized servers we used to have before. That was what we decided to do together, every school. And we're moving MIS together, every school. So there are some things there you can see that are really quite big items, big ticket items that we do together. Same as capital uh, projects. Capital projects, the SCA funding we get is all organised centrally. We pull that and we make decisions based on the fundamental requirements, obviously. Um, safe, warm, dry, and then those other things that might come through. And we do that centrally with the trust team. So quite a lot we do together. But then there's other things. What, um, what does your curriculum look like? Well, we set out uh, a very simple kind of what we call the DNA of the curriculum, the golden threads, which is some principles. And you can imagine they're pretty much motherhood and apple pie, aren't they? A broad, balanced curriculum. It must include opportunities to talk about certain things. And it must be at least as good as the national curriculum. So we set that out. But within that, there's flexibility about how schools adapt that according to their needs. So one of the primary schools, say, facing an area of profound um, social uh, challenge, uh, economic challenge, uh, where children, you know, traditionally have not gone to school very regularly whatsoever, and where parents have very little experience of education past the age of 16. We have a different approach how the curriculum works in early years and so than we have a school down the road. It's a very different context. And we think that's right. However, the high challenge is still there. The, uh, the breadth and balance, we still want to be there. Many parts of that scene, we were seeing at primary, Increasing, although people do have autonomy, we're seeing collaboration. So we're collaborating an awful lot of primary within the curriculum, not just items like assessment that run through any curriculum, but also the building blocks of knowledge that are in there that people are starting to work towards. At secondary, 
again, you know, you get secondary heads in a room and they'll have a very distinct view about how the nuances of the curriculum, but an awful lot is in common. An awful lot is in common. We all teach the basic subjects. So what we're moving to is saying, let's agree together, we'll use the same syllabuses, for example, and then we can collaborate. So there is a move, I think, a transfer from an idea that, you know, it's all going to be about autonomy to actually, it's much more about collaboration and a kind of, you know, autonomy that we're giving up is not a kind of giving up control. We still have control, but we're controlling it together as a group. And we're actually, this is about a joint project. But within that, you know, each school maintains its own individual character. And some of that comes from the head teacher, some comes from the governors, some comes from the community. But we want that character of each school to shine through as well. We're not trying to homogenize. I think one of the challenges that goes in with that, actually, Richard, is the, and, and I can, you know, absolutely understand the, the desire not to homogenize, but there's also the challenge of equality for opportunity for every child within the trust, isn't there? Uh, and that those two things can sometimes come into conflict a little bit. The, the desire to have a curriculum that is individual and it's context based, um, but but also that need to make sure that in school X and school Y, the children aren't receiving something that's completely different. Yeah, and I think that's why our kind of principles or curriculum DNA diagram that we use is quite important. It sets a benchmark really for what the minimum expectations are in the school. And it is just, we expect them to be better than that. But we do try to set that standard. So it isn't a, you know, a laissez-faire approach. And as far as our reviews at primary and secondary, they have a keen focus on the quality of education, which of course means the curriculum. And we know that trustees take a keen interest in what is taught in the schools as do our local governing bodies. So yeah, it's, it's definitely far from free for all. And I think we also have to, bear in mind the degrees of freedom within a schools given the accountability measures we've got mean that you know quite a lot of the change that we you know we worry about actually is, is is relatively minor what's more important is how we deliver the curriculum the teaching and learning approaches that's probably far more diverse and therefore more adjusted to the needs of the young people that we're that we're looking after I'm just thinking about, you know, the potential for loads, lots of curriculum changes. Obviously, at the moment, we've got the almost endless changes around uh, COVID and so on. But how do you create the capacity for the trust uh, to scan the horizon? Yeah, well, we it's at the moment, as as you know, it's, it's almost impossible because we're we're stuck into the day to day grind of COVID and dealing with that. But, you know, at primary level, uh, we have uh, a director of primary improvement who has got a track record as a teacher, but also as a local authority advisor and actually led on uh, the curriculum reforms at primary some years ago. And she helps bring that external knowledge in, working with, an, with a practicing executive head teacher primary to make sure that we do keep an eye on what's going on. We are horizon gazing. We are feeding that into the work within the primary group that phase group, and they work together really, really well to look out on what's going on in the world in terms of curriculum and how they can share together, but also share best practice, what's happening elsewhere across the system. And we try to stay linked into other trusts and see what they're doing through our connections and networking. 
and do things like, you know, come along to the ASCOL conference every year and take part in activities through professional associations that allow that insight. So we encourage and support that. And we've got quite a dynamic learning community among the primary heads who really want to look up beyond and, and do that naturally. A secondary, similar, you know, I work with the primary heads given my experience and role as executive head teacher as well as CEO. We do, I mean, this, this uh, we try to vary our meeting patterns. So, on a Wednesday, we meet as if what we call exec groups or the head teachers. Uh, and one week we have a briefing, which is just a short informational back and forth meeting. The following one is more of a discussion. So this next week is going to be about IT, a transformation of learning through IT, building on all the switches we've done and wires. So how does that make a difference for young people? What are we doing that's really interesting and fantastic that might make a difference? So that will be the meeting following. The following week, we're looking at how we do go about school improvements. How does that work within our schools and between our schools? And how does that link in with our work as a, uh, as a teaching school hub? So we try and use those, those regular meetings to blend in the day-to-day -day practical, talking about COVID, with an option to look beyond that, taking that kind of experience and, and uh, knowledge that people have brought into the trust, into the schools from outside. Thanks, Richard. Uh, you, you've mentioned COVID uh, a couple of times. That's clearly putting an enormous strain on the system at the moment and preventing uh, heads and other people from having the capacity to to really get their you know their horizons wide and and to look around. But what what are the issues that, assuming that we, one day we can actually move COVID nineteen to one side, what are the issues that are facing the system in your view as a leader at the moment? Well, I mean, short term, you know, obviously, yes, it's COVID. And and one of the issues that, you know, I, I, I worry about is how we recover from that. And I was so excited to see the money going into school and particularly the tutoring programme, which, you know, we read Education Endowment Fund is efficacy is very high. And then we discover that there's going to be a very complex procurement process to get some external companies to actually provide tutors and that you won't see the tutors until after November. And you just think, what a lot of time has gone to waste and what a lot of money has gone to waste. Give us the money as heads and let's make choices about who we want to tutor. The guidance issued by the EEF over the weekend uh, was guidance that we wouldn't need to give to a head teacher. It's, you know, it's absolutely obvious what would work. So I think there's a, you know, how do we get that closing the gap to work is a big issue for us. How do we take the resources out there, use them well so we can look back you know, next summer and think, yeah, we did all we possibly could. So that's a big issue for us. I think we're now looking forward further than that, thinking how do we cope as schools with the ongoing reality that life is uncertain? Because I think everything we read now and see is that, you know, that we may get on top of COVID in the next six months, two years, but there could be another COVID, another action. So how do we how we deliver education in this very prescribed way of every child getting onto a bus or a car or walking down the road to go to a big building to sit in there for all these hours a day i think that's radically changed same as it has in terms of our working habits as office workers it's changed and i think we will see a big challenge for us as schools as trying to be not just how do we deliver education effectively through remote learning blended learning but also keep alive all the other things that schools do because they're not just about delivering the curriculum they deliver so much in terms of pastoral care enrichment activities social occasions they bond and keep communities together so although we might be able to deliver the core function of schools how do we keep the rest 
together? How do we make that work? Because that's such an important role of schools. It's the, the only part of the community that does that and it needs to be kept. So I think it's a real challenge there. I think we've, we know that we've got a big problem in, in terms of assessments and uh, external examinations and the debate going on currently with Ofqual, the government about what to do next year and the example set by Scotland and being quite bold, I think, and just saying, right, get rid of the exams next summer. I think we have to be mindful of that. And I still think that it seems to me uh, strange that, you know, every year, uh, as we we'll all know, as head teachers, school leaders, that during the summer term, you'll see a white van pull up and piles of exam papers, paper exam papers being delivered and thrown off the back of a minibus, thrown into your exam store that has to be lead lined and secured with atomic locks nowadays, uh, you know, ready to give out to children on the day and who line up in rows. And you just think, this is so antiquated. Surely there's a better way of doing this. You know, when you've got, you know, a degree like medicine, where you don't do a written exam for five years, you know, and it's a high status. So surely we can apply that just to a simple benchmark test like GCSE and make it more dynamic, more available. So I think there's an opportunity to reform testing, examinations, how we assess children, how we rethink again, rather than throwing every bit of coursework and teacher assessment out of the window, think again to appraise where we got it wrong, because we did, we didn't like it, how we can make it better, and how we might be able to uh, leverage technology to make it do some good work for us in the areas, including the use of you know, AI, if appropriate, to give children a proper chance to show what they can do and have learned. Um, so assessment is another one. I think the other big question for me is, is around school structures. And this is really dull, but we still forget that we're caught in this mixed market world where some schools are now in the academy world in maths and some schools with the local authorities and some schools are very, very vulnerable, particularly those that are in that are single academy mats, single single academy, standalone rather, and some that are in within local authorities where they no longer got the capacity to be able to support them. And I think we have to worry about those individual schools, but there's no plan for bringing that together. There's no plan from government to say we'll all become one or the other. I don't think that two track approach that fragmented approach is good for schools and young people and school leaders in the longer term. So I hope that there's going to be somebody will be bold enough to make some decisions to talk to us about that and make some decisions in that area. But I think it's a real challenge as a school leader to come into an environment like that. And for a MAT leader, for a trust leader, thinking about, you know, the idea about expansion, what does that mean? What opportunities are for that? And how perhaps that's disincentivized by some of the financial and other risks associated with taking on some schools who perhaps might always be left lonely, as we know. Um, I think there's some work to be done there. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that, Richard. One of the things that also strikes me about the current system um, is, you know, that, that COVID-19 has the, the potential to make leaders very lonely as well. Um, so you talked about lonely schools, but there's that real uh, risk of leaders becoming very lonely um, and perhaps also leaders not remembering or having the capacity or time to to take the chance to sustain themselves forward. So what, what do you do to sustain yourself? What do you do to um, take the, uh, the, the current situation off? I, I do think it's a really important point and I, I think you know, over the last month, I think if any of us weren't aware of the stresses on people's mental health and well-being, 
of this situation they are now. I, I speak to the most robust and straightforward people who, who will say that they, and including myself, have found it really, really hard during this period uh, of lockdown, of social isolation. And if you take then the weight of leadership on top of that and dealing with daily uncertainty, you know, I do worry about leaders. And I think they are, you know, uh, frightened to say that they're finding it hard and they're often embarrassed about saying this is really hard, this is affecting me. What I do to try and get up is, uh, is uh, I do ride a bike uh, dressed in lycra, which is truly ridiculous look, I have to say. But, you know, going up a hill in Yorkshire, just turning the pedals is a great example of mindfulness. And the other thing I do is recently moved a little bit further out of town uh, and um, live in a, a house surrounded by fields. And, and one of the fields is ours, uh, at least from uh, the water company. And uh, I have four chickens, which I was delighted about. My wife and I are delighted because these chickens produce eggs, which are great. And they look better than ordinary eggs. And they're really excited. We tell all our friends, I've got our eggs. And then one day the chickens stopped laying eggs. And uh, the four girls, who were named after um, four very distinguished world leaders, uh, we have uh, Michelle, obviously Obama, um, you know, obviously the head of um, the New Zealand government obviously gets in there. Uh, and of course, we've got the uh, quite a, uh, a bossy chicken. It's Merkel, who is in there as well, as well as, of course, the inevitable Theresa Lay. Uh, in there. They, they, they've not produced eggs for weeks and, um, you know, eventually you know, discover a little kind of well-worn run that goes from their hutch, their rather nice coop, rather, into the corner of the field. And they've been hiding their eggs under a bushel and continue to do so and choose new places every day. We've not had a single egg from those girls for at least a month because they hide their eggs. Free range means that they've got 1.58 acres to hide eggs in. So if ever you fancy an egg hunt, come around to our place and we'll set you loose with the girls and see if you can find what they've laid. It's very frustrating. I think my uh, life as a farmer is, is now over. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that perhaps uh, a change of careers to farming may not may not be the future for you there, Richard. But um, not. <clears throat> yeah, well, it's an open invitation to anybody to uh, run to Richard's for an egg hunt at, at some point. Absolutely. Obviously, it need to be socially distanced at the moment. Thank you so much, Richard. You've uh, been really open and honest during this podcast. And I think, as you said earlier, it's it's such an important thing to be able to do at the moment is to be open and honest with each other. Uh, like you, I, I talk to heads, I talk to CEOs who are finding this situation incredibly tough at the moment. I think everybody will really appreciate your openness and honesty, Richard. So thank you so much for joining us today and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the very near future.